Hello and welcome to Overinvested, a podcast about pop culture obsessions. I'm Morgan Lee Davies, and here is my co-host, Gavia Baker-Whitelaw. Hello! So this is our episode where we share our favorite films of 2020. Uh, We do this every year, and uh, I believe these episodes are quite popular, which really warms the cockles of my, you know, cold black heart. Uh, I love sharing the movies that I love watching every year. This year is a bit of an odd discussion that we will be having because normally when we do these episodes we've gone to the movie theater many many times and watched lots of you know small obscure movies gone to film festivals and sort of picked these things out very carefully over the course of many months and um i watched a lot of the films on my list uh in the past like three weeks because i was frantically catching up and um you did not have access to a lot of the titles that have been discussed by American film critics because of distribution yeah. problems. <laughs> not only did I not get to see a significant portion of the movies that are on a lot of kind of top 10 lists this year, you know, like Nomadland and Minari and stuff, but also while Morgan was very assiduously watching loads of movies over the past month to catch up, occasionally she'd be like, Gavia, you really need to see, never really, sometimes, always. And I'd be like, well, I know there are some movies available to me that I should be watching to catch up, but they're all really depressing and hard hitting sounding. So I didn't really do much of an effort to catch up in December Most years, I have seen dozens and dozens and dozens of really interesting indie movies. And this year, being in the UK, did not have that access. So it's a bit of a different uh, shakedown than usual. Well, I also found putting this together, you know, I saw over 60 new movies last year, many of which were watched in the month of December. But um, obviously, this is such a huge part of both of our lives is watching new movies. And Like, even for me, I just didn't feel that motivated to keep up with stuff over the course of the year until I was like, oh, we have to do this. And I really wanted to have watched the stuff, like, the important movies. I mean, I watched so many fantastic movies for the first time. Yes. But they weren't movies from 2020. I'm like, well, Apocalypse Now is great. Yeah, I mean, I got really into, like, Warren Beatty movies from the 70s, which is not the same conversation. But I really love all the movies that I'm going to talk about today and I'll list off some extra ones at the end. Like the top 20 on my list are all really wonderful films. And I think it was actually a really, really strong year for movies, at least sort of what technically came out in America. But the discussion around them culturally was pretty non-existent. Like obviously there were film critics who were championing these things, but the number of times I have listened to people on podcasts in the past month or two be like, I don't even know why they're having the Oscars this year because there weren't any movies. And I was like, there were many, many films. But like, it just hasn't, like, it hasn't penetrated the cultural consciousness yeah. that this stuff happened. And it, right? it really kind of disproves the idea that like, if something is online, it's available to everyone because the movies that dominated the conversation this year and a lot of the TV shows are things that are literally on Netflix And most of those Netflix original releases are either subpar prestige projects or like actively bad films. And, you know, it kind of shows that like you do actually need like a mainstream release where people see stuff in theatres and crucially you're getting like talk show appearances and posters and stuff like that. And that isn't happening for a lot of the movies that kind of got mothballed or are still sort of on the indie circuit or went directly from the indie festival circuit to a VOD release. So yeah. Yeah. So hopefully we can bring your attention to some of those films. Again, like even I had not seen a lot of this stuff until pretty recently because it just felt less urgent. And 
I love all these movies, but normally I've spent so much time kind of obsessing over like the order of my list and what's going to be on it. And I feel way less strongly about that this year, even though I love these movies. Like I changed the order five minutes ago. (laughs) So, and I was talking to a friend about this the other day who works in, in film. And I think a lot of that does have to do with the fact that we were watching all this stuff at home. In any year, there will be things I watch at home that I love. And there are people who don't have the option to go see indie stuff in the cinema. I think a lot of the effect of seeing movies in a theater, someone was saying this on a podcast recently, I can't remember who, unfortunately. It's not only that you get to see it on a big screen and that that's like a special experience, it's that you remember where you were when you were seeing it. Yeah, it's an event. And these movies are great, but I saw a couple of them at NIF last year, but for the most part, I was watching them all on my couch and it's just not the same thing. And so they're all kind of like glommed together in my head in a way that is different and kind of lacking, I think, from a normal year, which is too bad. But obviously, you know, that just is what it is. So um, we will be listing them in descending order from 10 down to 1. And uh, hopefully you guys will uh, watch some of them. Um, Our episode, the one we did this last year, was like one of the most listened to of the year. So uh, if you guys want to tell us about some of the stuff that you wound up watching from that we would be we would love to hear about that on twitter gabby do you want to start with your number 10 of the year yes and as always there is obviously going to be some overlap both with individual episodes we've done this year and with the episodes we did on our film festival picks because often there's a lot of film festival stuff and obviously we will steer clear of spoilers yes um yeah so my number 10 is the animated film wolf walkers which i saw at the london film festival um, which is an irish movie directed by tom moore and ross stewart and it's this delightful suitable for very young children fairy tale fantasy movie it's the same studio that made the secret of kells and song of the sea and they have this beautiful sort of hand-drawn style and it's about a little girl In 17th century Ireland, she's an English girl who travels to Ireland with her father, who's part of the kind of English invasion force. And it's about this girl making friends with a local Irish girl who is also a wolf shapeshifter. And it's kind of about colonialism and forest spirits and nature. And, you know, it's a little young children's coming of age story. And it's just really, really beautiful, like visually. And the music choices are lovely. And it's really smart while also being very simple and easy to understand. I mean, wolf walkers. Anyone who's seen one of the movies by the studio knows that they do great work. I loved this movie as well. Um, I saw it a couple of weeks ago. It was like number, I think I have it number 14 on my list. So I would really recommend it too. It's available on Apple TV in the US and I think on Netflix everywhere else. And I have something that is also available on Apple on my list. Another movie they have that I don't have on mine, but I would also recommend is Boys State, the documentary. So if you're in America and have the means, I would recommend getting Apple TV Plus for like a month and just watching yeah. the good movies they have and then canceling your subscription. Yeah, and not bothering with any of their TV projects where they poured a vast amount of money into making some very dubious ideas. Yeah, because <laughs> Wolfwalkers, I mean, I, I'm not a child and do not have children and I loved it so much. And if you do have kids or happen to be living with children at the moment, I kept thinking watching it that if I'd seen it as a kid, I would have just been completely entranced. And 
you know, that studio cartoon saloon that made that and The Secret of Kells and a couple other movies, it feels so special, like extra special to have that kind of like hand-drawn animation happening now because it's so rare and their style is distinct anyway. I would imagine for a kid that's been raised on sort of Pixar type stuff that it would be really fascinating um, if you have a kid who likes movies. So uh, I definitely second that recommendation. I love that movie. My number 10 film is a little indie called Driveways, which was directed by Andrew Ahn and written by the screenwriters Hannah Boss and Paul Thoreen. And this film stars uh, Hong Chow as a single mother whose older sister dies and she takes her young son to go clean out the sister's house and this house turns out to be like packed with stuff. The sister was clearly a hoarder. And Brian Dennehy is the elderly neighbor of the late sister who was a Korean War veteran and they kind of wind up forming this friendship, especially the old man and the young boy. And the sort of logline of this movie that I've just laid out feels like such a kind of Sundancey movie and like it could go wrong so easily. But the execution of this movie is just so perfect that I was completely entranced the whole time and really profoundly moved by the end. The script is incredible, uh, which is a lot of what makes it work. I think it never feels schmaltzy or like emotionally fake. And the actors all do a great job too. The little kid um, whose name I can't, I have a list of the cast here, but I'm not sure which is the kid, but the kid is really, really good, which helps a lot. And Hong Chow and Brian Dennehy are also really remarkable. I just love this movie and I've thought about it a lot since seeing it, which is, you know, a high recommendation. Um, Yeah, I feel like everyone who's seen this movie has really liked it. Um, It's definitely something where if I saw a description, I'd be like, hmm. And then just the fact that everyone gave it glowing reviews. I'm like, yeah, I'm definitely watching that whenever it comes out in my zone. (laughs) Yeah, it was Brian Dennehy's last movie and he has a monologue in the last like five minutes of the film that I was just like bawling. And he's amazing in it. It was really just beautiful and humane in a way that I appreciated a lot this year in particular. So um, that's available streaming in general in the US, but it, if you have Showtime, I watch it for free that way. So I, I highly recommend that movie. I loved it. And what is your number nine, Gabia? It is a member of one of my very favorite subgenres, which is alien style sci-fi survival horror films. (laughs) Um, I actually saw a couple of movies in this subgenre this year. I was considering including the blockbuster named Underwater starring Kristen Stewart, which I enjoyed (laughs) tremendously. But this movie is, I would fully admit, smarter and more interesting as a film. Um, It's called Sea Fever and it's a relatively low budget indie film directed by Nisa Hardiman, who is an Irish TV director, but this is her first feature film. And the premise is that it's set on a small fishing trawler and the main character is a PhD student uh, played by Hermione Corfield and then everyone else is just members of the crew of this small fishing trawler. And she is quite socially awkward and academic and doesn't really fit in. And the crew, I felt, were really interestingly well chosen because they didn't go for like, oh, here's a bunch of like stereotypical guys. The ship is owned by a married couple played by Connie Nielsen and Dougray Scott. And the crew includes uh, two Syrian refugee characters. 
and there's also an old woman on the boat so it's like you've got an interesting cast already and in order to you know do their job they need to catch a bunch of fish but they go into a kind of dangerous exclusion zone in the ocean which turns out to include like a strange sea creature Um, and it's just a really well done thriller with interesting kind of individual characters very well directed and it's got kind of plenty of what feels like authentic sciencey kind of stuff without being too heavy on totally ridiculous techno babble. So I just I just thought this was a fantastic example of that genre specifically. Um, sea Fever by Nisa Hardiman. Yes, I have that on my list, but I haven't seen it yet. And you have definitely convinced me to make sure to check it out. Oh, actually, I should add for Sea Fever, I'd completely forgotten, but (laughs) this came out right at the beginning of the pandemic and it is literally an infectious pandemic movie (laughs) that absolutely reflects, I can't believe I didn't mention this initially, it absolutely reflects like (laughs) precisely kind of like paranoid meltdowns everyone was seeing. And I watched this in March, right as the pandemic was hitting. So it was like, oh my God. (laughs) Yes. Yeah. So my number nine is Lover's Rock by Steve McQueen, the second installment of his small acts series. Um, I still haven't seen the last couple of those. I knew I only wanted to include one on this list just so that I could talk about other projects, but it seems like this is the consensus of the best one. It's the best one that I saw for sure of those three at um, the New York Film Festival, which we discussed on our film festival episode, which we'll link to in the show notes. But just briefly, like the direction of this movie is so extraordinary, definitely among the best of the year. And um, I think for the higher up picks on my list, I went with stuff that was a little more like plot dense. But um, in terms of just like the experience of watching something, this was one of the best sort of movie watching experiences I had this year. And um, it was really just like so joyous and beautiful. And yeah, sort of our artistic craft level the direction of this film was one of the highlights of movies in 2020 for me, for sure. And it was the highlight of the small axes that I've seen. I loved Mangrove also, but I picked this one um, to put on the list because I preferred it. But in general, small axe was a big, big highlight of the year. So I'm sure we will be discussing. I'm sure that this shows up on your list too. So uh, I'll leave it at that. (laughs) It is higher up on my list. (laughs) So my number eight is a documentary uh, titled Dick Johnson is Dead, which is available on Netflix. And it's directed by Kirsten Johnston, who is a cinematographer. She has done camera work for many documentaries, including Citizen Four, the Edward Snowden documentary. She's a very, very established documentarian. And she's also made two films of her own, one of which is Camera Person, about her kind of job. And this one is about her relationship with her father. She's middle-aged. He is very elderly in his, I think, late 80s or early 90s. I don't recall. But um, he's a retired psychiatrist who has been diagnosed with dementia. It's a documentary about their relationship. It's very kind of comedic and surreal because the premise is that in order to kind of come to terms with their father's mortality, they decide to stage his death in various like comical accidents so it's like a combination of these weird surreal comedic set pieces and also just stuff about kind of their everyday life and the people around them yeah I mean I just really enjoyed this because it was an example of essentially like a normal non-celebrity non-entertainer person being both extremely normal and nice and being very weird and artistic which I think is like a very 
a very kind of authentic portrayal of humanity that doesn't necessarily get depicted in the, in like a movie about normal people. And also it's about like a relationship with a legitimately good dad where everyone likes each other, which is a, another rare topic in cinema. So uh, Dick Johnson is dead, snappy title, and also like a rare fun movie about dementia, which is also obviously very realistic and kind of saddening. I, I personally have not lost a parent, so I think this will hit very differently for some other viewers. Yeah, I have this at number five. I was completely just like blown away by this movie, um, which I saw pretty recently. Both my parents are alive also, but my grandmother died last year and she didn't have dementia exactly, but at the last year of her life, I would say, she was definitely losing her memory and she was very old. So it was kind of just like her whole body was breaking down. And um, I was thinking obviously about like my parents watching this because it's about this woman's relationship with her father. But I was thinking a lot about both my grandmothers, one of whom is still alive, because they're the elderly people who were like the most meaningful people in my life. And I found this movie just like so immensely profound about death and dealing with the deterioration of someone you love at that age because she the, she's filming for a long enough span of time that you kind of see him deteriorate not fully but um the beginning section she, like they talk about the fact that he's starting to lose his memory a bit but he's clearly still basically himself and then like a year or two passes and it's not like he's forgetting everything but like he's obviously gotten a bit worse and having watched a version of that process happen to someone I was close to recently the way that she clearly wanted to illustrate it in a very honest way but also was including the sort of humorous aspects and the film is intended to celebrate her father and not to be like a miserableist project yeah you can kind of see how compassionate it is because you've got this very bizarre and unique circumstance where where clearly she and her father both kind of understand each other very well and he trusts her to be making this extremely morbid and bizarre like darkly comedic movie about his death and you know she has to trust herself to put an extremely vulnerable person on camera even including the point including up to the point where he's getting like actively confused yeah, and there's like dialogue in the movie about her having to figure out and navigate at what point she has to sort of stop doing things because it's no longer comfortable for him, right? In terms of like the filmmaking. But the big context for the movie is that she lost her mother years earlier to Alzheimer's and doesn't really have much footage of her. And she's a filmmaker, so she really wants to have this record of her father. And the intention of the movie is obviously primarily personal and that she wants to have this thing to be like a document of her father as a person once he's dead. And I don't want to say what they do at the very end of the movie because I found it like unbelievably moving and intelligent. But the end is so amazing. So... Again, like, obviously, there's stuff about the movie that's really upsetting, but I found it so beautiful and, like, joyous also. I was, like, in awe of the fact that she pulled off the tone because it feels like an impossible task. 
I mean, you just come away with such a positive impression of her as a person. Yeah. Also, kind of, Morgan and I were talking a couple of weeks ago. I was like, oh, uh, there's so many movies about dementia this year because there's obviously this drama called The Father starring Anthony Hopkins, which is very acclaimed. And there's also another documentary film which sounds very similar to D- Dick Johnson is Dead, which I've not seen, but it's called Our Time Machine. And it's um, made by a Chinese artist who finds out that his father has dementia. So he kind of makes this puppet show about it that's kind of about time travel and memory and stuff and I was like oh interesting double bill there if you want to watch both of those but then Morgan was like Gavia all these filmmakers are in their 40s and 50s of course they're all making movies about dementia they all have elderly parents and I was like oh yeah okay (laughs) yep (laughs) speaking of old people and old parents uh, my number eight film is Sofia Coppola's On the Rocks which is not about dementia but is about a middle-aged person dealing with her older father played respectively by Rashida Jones and Bill Murray. This is also on Apple. This also, I really suspect that this is going to be one of Sofia Coppola's movies, and this happens to her a lot, which is received by critics kind of middlingly at the time, and then 10 years later, everyone's like, oh, it's a masterpiece. Like, I really think that's going to happen. Because most of the reviews I saw were not, like, negative, but they were kind of like, eh. And... I avoided watching it for some time because I love Sofia Coppola and I was really looking forward to it, but I also am like a huge sucker for movies about women or girls and their fathers and obviously have not seen my father in quite some time because of the current situation and knew it was going to just like mess me up. And indeed, I was like just crying randomly, like in the middle of this movie, not at like anything that was happening in the film, just like the whole experience of the movie was like so much that I was like literally they were like leaving her apartment to like go to dinner and I was just like weeping on my bed I mean like it was a lot for me so part of the reason I wanted to include it on the list was just that I think it was like the most pure kind of emotional response I had to a film all year which is slightly different from like is this the best movie I saw but I also think this movie is really great if not necessarily perfect I think the end is a little bit fuzzy but the basic setup is that Rashida Jones plays this woman who she's a writer she's kind of having writer's block her husband is in tech and is running a startup and he's kind of acting funny and she's a little bit suspicious that he's sleeping with one of his colleagues and she says something to her father about this her father's played by bill murray and he and her mother are divorced like long ago and the father is this like total womanizing cad but he's very very charming because he's played by bill murray and immediately her dad's like yes he's definitely having an affair like 100 percent, this is what's happening because all men do this and like He, you know, gives her long speeches about, like, biologically men are programmed to do X, Y, and Z thing. She kind of becomes, like, suckered by his vision of the situation. And you as the viewer can't really tell for a lot of the movie whether this affair is really happening or not. And the husband character is not very interesting. It's way more about this woman and her father. And um, Bill Murray is, like, amazing in this movie, And so is Rashida Jones. And I found it, it's both like really funny and enjoyable to watch, but I think that what made it really interesting to me on a thematic level is that her dad is saying lots of like quite sexist stuff in the movie, but obviously really loves her. And I think part of what the movie is kind of interrogating is like how you as a woman who like is an adult and has an independent life, but has 
like an older man or older men in your life who have outdated ideas, but you still love that person, how do you reckon with that relationship? Which I think is something that probably a lot of women of like in their 30s or 40s or younger or older can kind of relate to. Um, My father is not like that, but I can think of other people who I feel that way about. Probably the majority of dads. Yeah. I mean, this movie made me think made me think of my dad a lot, obviously, hence me like weeping. And my dad is thankfully like not a sexist or a womanizer, but it was impossible not to think about him watching this. But like there's a specific other person in my life I was thinking about a lot who's really important to me and is an older guy who definitely is like kind of a sexist, but I love him, right? And so it like I think that tension is really interesting. And I think that that's kind of what this movie is about. And of course, it's impossible not to watch it and like speculate wildly about Sofia Coppola's relationship with Francis Ford Coppola, which I mean, (laughs) it seems obvious that that's part of what's going on here. But um, it's like very humane to all the characters in the movie while also ultimately being kind of critical of this guy in a way that I found really interesting and smart, ultimately. Um, and it's just, like, fun to watch. Like, they go on a little chase in the middle of the night following her husband in, like, an Alfa Romeo or something. I mean, like, you know, it's it's designed to be comic and fun. And, of course, they're, like, going to all these swanky New York spots that are, like, closed now. So it was emotional in that way, too, for me. But I think this movie got, like, not nearly enough attention. And that will probably be rectified in future. Uh, My number seven is His House, which is a British indie horror film, which is now available on Netflix. It's written and directed by first-time filmmaker Remy Weeks, and it is about a couple of South Sudanese refugees who move to England, and it kind of begins with them uh, going through the extremely grueling process of being an asylum seeker in England, trying to, you know, first of all, they start out in a detention center and it's about them kind of getting their first house and obviously it's like their first house but it belongs to the government and they have to follow this like nightmarishly circuitous list of rules like they're not allowed to work they're meant to try and integrate into the local community without being given any kind of social care and having a tiny budget and also they're both suffering horribly from the trauma of having fled a war-torn country and lost their child and this movie kind of combines being a genuinely very scary horror movie with being very politically astute because it's a classic haunted house movie like they move into this house which is um a very rundown council house which like clearly has not been recently occupied by anyone who has been caring for the house and they are, like are trying to make this into a home while suffering from their personal issues and very quickly it feels clear that the house is haunted by some kind of spirit that they've brought with them that is haunting them kind of both literally and metaphorically as part of their trauma. And um, the kind of third main character is uh, their caseworker, who's played by Matt Smith, who is an instantly very hateable style of English man, who is also very well cast as Matt Smith in particular. And it's just, it's just a great movie. And one and a half hours long, nice length for a horror film. My number seven is the Romanian documentary Collective, which was directed by Alexander Nanau. Yeah, that's my number My number five. Yeah. This movie, I hadn't heard about it, and then it started showing up on um, a bunch of critics, you know, top ten lists, and so I sought it out, and um, it is just incredible. The 
basic setup here is um, there was this fire in a nightclub in Romania, which was tragic in itself, but then a huge number of the people who were burned in that fire wound up dying in hospitals in the sort of weeks and months after the fact. And this team of journalists at like a sports tabloid in Romania wound up uncovering all of this corruption within the medical system in Romania specifically. There was all this like dilution of, um, oh, what's the word I'm looking for? It's like antibacterial stuff they yeah. have in hospitals. Like it's all extremely technical because, and it, it, it's interesting because like it really does play like a thriller. Like it's a very thrilling, nail-biting, horrifying narrative, which is kind of playing out with these very sort of boring, normal, everyday workman-like journalists who are, who, like Morgan said, are working for a sports tabloid. And they're uncovering all this deeply technical stuff about how certain corrupt like hospital suppliers have been walking down have been watering down particular types of antibacterial spray and it's led to this massive outbreak of these horrible like deadly diseases and like maggots on people's bodies and hospitals and stuff and it it doesn't sensationalize anything because it doesn't need to it's very horrifying um and it's also one of these movies that makes you go jesus christ we really need journalism (laughs) yeah it reminded me a lot of all the president's men yeah, absolutely. That was the movie it reminded me the most of, which obviously is fictional, but it had a very similar kind of vibe. The main journalist that they follow is, again, like very normal, but you just have the sense of this man being like so principled and caring so much about what he's doing in a way that is completely captivating to watch um, because it's real. And then the sort of second half of the movie winds up shifting a little bit and they get access somehow to like the new health minister or whatever his title is. Like there's a personnel shift and it's this young kind of slightly naive reformer type guy who really wants to fix everything. And that is obviously not really possible, although he's trying. And um, I think part of what makes the movie so effective is that it's incredibly specific, right? Like it's following this very granular case, as you say, it's all this sort of technical stuff about disinfectants. But because the corruption they're uncovering is so endemic and upsetting, I of course wound up thinking about the American government a lot because we are having similar problems here. And like, if the place that you live has a situation like this you're gonna wind up thinking about that and the movie doesn't make any effort to be like we're making a grand statement about the nature of all corruption but it so effectively tells the story that it winds up sort of having that effect anyway yeah i mean it's it's a film without any kind of voiceovers it's literally just like footage of what's happening with very minimal explanation yeah but you totally get all of it yeah yeah i was really just like riveted by it. It was the most sort of like nail-biting movie I watched this year, I think. And again, it's a documentary. Um, I think it was a really strong year for documentaries in general. Um, and I would highly, highly recommend this to anyone. It's, you know, streaming everywhere. So you can check that out. Uh, that is, again, collective. So, Gabia, what do you have up next? Yeah, sixth on my list is, this is 
a very obscure one and I'm sorry to say it's not currently available anywhere but if you're the kind of person who makes lists of to watch films <laughs> go for this it's called Mothney Toward the Ocean Toward the Shore and it's by a Native American filmmaker called Sky Hapinka, who um, usually makes kind of visual art and short films. This is his first feature film. Um, he's a member of the Ho-Chunk Nation and the film is partly in English and partly in Chinook with kind of subtitles in English or Chinook, depending on which way around it goes. And it's a kind of experimental art documentary, which is kind of about life and death. <laughs> it's got a lot of water imagery and... Uh, forest imagery and it follows two people just around their daily lives in the present day um, a man and a woman they don't know each other or interact but they're both kind of acquaintances of the filmmaker and they're both Native American people in the Pacific Northwest and it's just them kind of talking about their lives it's interwoven with this discussion about the uh, kind of origin of death myth in um, their culture and I just found it an incredibly beautiful and moving and interesting and compelling film to watch visually it's absolutely beautiful it's got really great sound design that makes you kind of feel immersed in water and the natural world and I just found it very moving to watch in the middle of lockdown when I couldn't get access to any like trees or water and I was just like what a great film that's making me remember that the world exists <laughs> so Mothney Towards the Ocean Towards the Shore by Sky Hopinka. You were so proud that you had a movie on your list that I was not going to have heard of. And indeed, I have never heard of this film. So you win. <laughs> I was like, I've defeated Morgan with this very obscure art film. <laughs> uh, and I cannot wait to see this at some point when it becomes available to me. My number six is The Assistant, directed by Kitty Green, which is streaming on Hulu at the moment in America and takes place over the course of... I believe just one day in the life of this young woman played by Julia Garner, who is an assistant at a production company in New York that is very obviously modeled on the Weinstein company. Like the Weinstein figure boss remains off screen the whole time, but he like looms over this company. And yeah. she's- This is one of the movies which I, like Morgan has recommended to me several times and I really want to watch. But once it got to December, I was like, I can't face the stress of watching this very stressful sounding film. You, well, someday you, you must I watch will. this. Um, it's pretty short, so it's excruciating, but at least you're not like trapped inside this movie for three hours or something. I think it's under an hour and a half. Yeah, it's 88 minutes long. And- I saw Julia Garner, the lead on The Americans. She had a sort of guest part in that show and she was really amazing and she's incredible in this movie as well. But I think Kitty Green just does an amazing job with the direction. Um, she wrote the screenplay as well. It's mostly like, I can't think of the technical term I'm looking for, but like still camera shots, like the camera doesn't move very much. And there's not a lot of like scenes in a traditional sense, like it's all pretty quick. You're just getting this sense of like the oppressiveness of this environment and everything that is unspoken. So you understand everything that this young woman has observed and is observing but can't talk about. And there's a scene near the end where she finally does articulate what she's uncomfortable with. And she's not the person who's being like assaulted she just is seeing everything that's going on or like 
sees the sort of implications or like the evidence of what's going on, which is obviously also horrible. And she goes and tries to talk to HR and the HR person is played by Matthew McFadden, i.e. Tom Wanskans on Succession. And it is the most horrible, like, oh my God, you just want to die. Like he is just the slimiest, most disgusting man. Love this niche that he's uh, carving out yeah. for himself. <laughs> and uh, he of course like pretends to be like sympathetic to her and then she you watch her realize that this is not like nothing is gonna be gonna happen as a result of this and uh it made I just it was really horrifying to me but also like I interned at Focus Features when I was in college which is like a larger than this office but like a similar kind of deal like I was the development intern. So I was basically the personal assistant to one of the development executives. And the people who were running focus features at that time were the like producers and executives who made this movie happen. James Seamus um, was like the head producer on it. And I had an amazing, amazing experience at like for the three months that I was at that place. It was such a great office. Everyone was so nice. I learned so much probably remains like my most positive professional experience like of my life to date, which is kind of depressing because I was 20 years old. But I remember like hearing around, like you did not want to be an intern at the Weinstein company or at Scott Rudin's company. And I didn't know what was going on, but like it was just known that those were like bad places. Like they were bad bosses. You don't want to go there. But I was so naive. Like I just didn't get it. And I just had this great time and working in film was so fun And watching this, it was, like, familiar enough to the experience that I had in sort of, like, the granular details. Like, everything is completely right about the stuff that they're doing. Like, this woman obviously knows what she's talking about. But it's so submerged in this sense of horror that I didn't feel at all working in the place that I was working, right? Because it was actually, like, a good office. And it made me so sad because I just thought, like, oh, right, this is what so many people have to deal with. And I just had no concept at the time that that was the case. And it felt so kind of perfect to me that, like, the producers on the movie were the people I worked for who actually were, like, nice people. And uh, I think that this movie would be getting a lot more attention if it were not specifically about the film industry. And I think the people in Hollywood don't want to think about it because it's too uncomfortable. If you want to watch a movie about what it's like to work at the Weinstein Company for an hour and a half, you can watch The Assistant, directed by Kitty Green, on Hulu now. What do you have up next? Well, Morgan, my fifth pick is the documentary Collective, which we just discussed, so I'm going to bat the ball right back to you. And my fifth pick is Dick Johnson is Dead. So we've, we've talked about both those documentaries. Let's move on to number four. Surprising number of documentaries this year. Yeah. Uh, Yeah, number four is a film that we discussed during our film festival episode, but at that point, Morgan hadn't seen it yet. It's Another Round, uh, directed by Thomas Vinterberg, which is a Danish drama starring my beloved Mads Mikkelsen. A very welcome, good film starring Mads Mikkelsen, who is always a good actor, but is not always in good films. Yes. (laughs) I mean, obviously, I love this movie. Um, It is a somewhat comedic, but dark drama Um, about a midlife crisis. The main character is a middle-aged school teacher who is friends with a handful of other middle-aged school teachers um, in Denmark, obviously. So culturally, it feels pretty different from a film set in Britain or America. And uh, kind of it starts off with him 
very clearly suffering from depression, but he's kind of interpreting it as him just being like, oh, I'm a very boring person with a boring life. And his students essentially stayed an intervention being like, you're so uninspiring. And through a rather circuitous but extremely plausible set of circumstances, he alights upon the idea of making himself more lively by drinking a small amount of booze every day at work because he thinks that he's he and his friends have come across an academic article which is like, oh yes, actually, if your blood alcohol level is 0.5 at all times, then it just improves your brain power so much. So it's kind of he and his friends embark on this science experiment as they describe it to just basically day drink. And it's this really interesting kind of examination of drinking culture in general, because the film doesn't really make a strong judgment one way or the other. It kind of portrays the ways in which booze can act as social lubricant and how there's all these young people having an amazing time binge drinking in parties. But they're also showing like, if you're depressed and you're using alcohol as a crutch, it's incredibly dangerous and bad. And obviously this plan is absurd that they were setting out on, but it's an amazing performance from Mads Mikkelsen. Thomas Vinterberg is one of Denmark's most acclaimed filmmakers, although I've not actually seen any of his other films. But he directed Mickelson in The Hunt, which is what he won the Best Actor Prize at Cannes for a few years ago. And uh, yeah, this is just, I would just highly recommend this movie unless those topics are going to be too triggering for you. But I just find it very thoughtful and entertaining and gripping. Just like a, a wide range of human emotion with a fantastic actor in the lead role. Yeah, I saw this recently because again, I've watched like a zillion movies in the past month. And I liked it less than you on the whole, I but I still really liked it and would recommend it. And I think Mads Mikkelsen is incredible in this movie. He should be winning all the critics' prizes. It's crazy to me that he is not. It's ju- I think it's purely just that it's not an English language movie, honestly. Because like when I think, I don't really think as much about the Oscars as Morgan does, but like there's a couple of performances this year where I'm just like, this is, this is like a best actor performance. And it's like Maz Mikkelsen, Delroy Lindo into Five Bloods, which like could have made my top 10, but not quite. And then the lead actor in Mangrove, which we're going to talk about in a minute. Yeah. Delroy Lindo and Chadwick Boseman are winning most of the awards. And for sure, <laughs> I, I did not like the Five Bloods at all. And I think Delroy Lindo is very good in it. I get it. That's fine. And I did not like Ma Rainey's Black Bottom at all. And I don't think Chadwick Boseman is bad, but the movie is just not good. So I completely understand people liking those performances for sure. But I also think it is significant that both those movies are Netflix movies and therefore are in front of everybody. But I just think what he's doing in this film is there's one female performance that I will be talking about in the next few minutes that I also feel is like the one this year. And for me, he's like the one of the men. I just thought it was completely mesmerizing what he's doing and like the range of what he has to do in terms of like technical stuff, the emotions he's expressing. I will not say what happens in the last five minutes of this movie, but it was the best thing I saw in any movie this year. I'm genuinely angered by people and critics, especially who have spoiled the ending of this movie. There's so many reviews to spoil the ending. And I'm like, you bastards, you're ruining it. (laughs) But like, you should watch the movie and get to see what happens at the end. Because it's so good. It's just so good. (laughs) So, uh... I mean, I obviously do not have the same intensity of feeling about Mads Mikkelsen as you do because I do not love Hannibal, but I always thought he was great in it and like yeah. always liked him as an actor. And I have seen The Hunt and he's really good in that too. But I think this yeah. is the best I mean, thing he's done that I've seen. Yeah. 
And as I said, like, I did say this jokingly, but it's absolutely true that he is one of our great actors. And he also just has, like, routinely very corny taste. Like, his taste is all over the place. He will do so many garbage movies. Like, he's just signed up for, like, fucking Harry Potter. Like, sure, get the cash. Whatever. (laughs) (laughs) But, like, but he always, like, brings his A-game. And, you know, occasionally he will be in a really good film and you'll be like, thank God. (laughs) Yes. Yeah. We both recommend that one. My number four is First Cow by Kelly Rickard. I'm so keen to see First Cow. I want to see the cow movie. (laughs) The best cow. We love the cow. I saw this at NIF last year. So I actually got to see it on the big screen. Although I was, this was in the period that I have referenced many times on this podcast where I was experimenting with a new migraine medication. It was basically a zombie. So I fell asleep while seeing this at NIF. But I rewatched it recently on my computer, which was a less, you know beautiful experience visually but um this movie is as good as everyone is saying that it is it's definitely like the critical darling of the year and deservedly so i have always liked kelly reichart but never like completely loved one of her movies certain women which we discussed in the podcast a couple years ago i think is really excellent but i wasn't like wildly head over heels for that movie and then um i think the only other one of hers that i'd seen was uh, Meek's Cutoff, which I don't particularly care for. But this movie is just so special. And of what I know of her filmmaking, it feels like it really crystallizes what's so great about her in a way that is a little bit more accessible than some of the like slower stuff that she has done. And like that's fine to do a slow movie. But this movie is not is definitely like an art film, but also... Like, stuff's happening the whole time in a way that I found very enjoyable. The basic setup is that John Magaro plays this guy named Cookie, who's a cook, who's traveling to the Oregon Territory in, like, the mid-19th century. He runs into this Chinese guy played by Orion Lee, who is a little bit more ambitious than he is. And they wind up running this scheme using milk that they've stolen from the first cow in the territory, who is very beautiful and played by a cow named Evie, great cow, making oily cakes that they sell at a very high price to the people in this little um, community who don't have access to, you know, baked goods and are totally, like, enamored by these oily cakes. And inevitably, this scheme is not going to end well, right? Like, you know it can't end well. But I think... What's so special about the movie is that it's really, really astute on colonialism and capitalism in a way that feels like incredibly intelligent without being like pedantic or like the movie's lecturing to you at all. It just feels like it organically kind of understands these topics and has things to say about them in like a storytelling way. And then the male characters at the center of the film are just like very nice men. They're just nice guys. And the John McGarrow character in particular, Cookie, is just like not aggressive at all. He's just like a nice boy. In a way that, again, feels obviously very deliberate and interesting, but not like ahistorical at all. There's a moment where he kind of runs into this guy and they go to the little shack that the other guy is living in. And he just starts, like, tidying up his house and, like, sweeping. And I was like, oh, like, 
This is so cute. I simply cannot wait to see the cow. Film. Oh, <laughs> but it's also but there's like a real melancholy to it as well. I just it it's just really really beautiful. What it what it ultimately really gets at is that, like there are certain things about life that like you can't escape, right? And like hard and difficult and tragic things, but also that life can be really beautiful and fulfilling as well. Uh, yeah, I just found it really affecting and quite fun to watch. Like, again, it's an art film, but it's funny and the characters are really appealing. So don't be scared of this movie, basically. Even if it's maybe not something that you would normally seek out, like, I would really recommend it because even though it is a bit slow and arty, I think it's quite accessible, actually. So um, I think often people are quite surprised by the volume of unusual and obscure art films, which are actually very chill and entertaining. Yeah. And we are here to tell you which ones are chill and entertaining. Yes. Uh, yeah, so my number three is one that Morgan mentioned previously, which is Lover's Rock, one of the five small acts movies made by Steve McQueen, which Americans can now watch on Amazon and British people can now watch on uh, the BBC iPlayer. And uh, yeah, set at a house party. I think we've already said a lot about this because we also discussed it in our film festival episode, but it's just tremendous. And I have been listening to the uh, soundtrack playlist on Spotify several times because obviously killer soundtrack. Yes. I keep getting things from it stuck in my head and I haven't listened to the soundtrack. So that's really, that's from months ago now. So that's really a high endorsement that that's still like And it's also like nostalgic 1980s deep cuts, London reggae, which is only some of those songs were familiar to me before seeing the movie. Yeah, I mean, obviously great, great film. I highly endorse. My number three is Never Really, Sometimes Always by Eliza Hittman, invoked earlier on this podcast as a depressing movie that Caveat did not want to watch. (laughs) I saw this on like a really poor quality screener in March, I think, to review it for The Daily Dot. And there was like sunlight coming in and it was like reflecting on my computer. And again, the quality was really bad. And I still was like, this is an incredible incredible movie it came out it literally was released into theaters the weekend that the country shut down and eliza hitman the director was very upset about what had happened not that like she wasn't mad at anyone specifically like obviously it was it just sucked but um i think this movie should have gotten massive attention that it has not really although it has gotten some critics prizes which makes me happy but um i think it's just like a major film that should be treated as such. The setup is that it's about a teenage girl named Autumn, played by Sydney Flanagan, who's just like a teenager they found who has not acted before and is incredible in this movie, who gets pregnant and she lives in not exactly rural Pennsylvania, but like way out there in Pennsylvania somewhere. And in Pennsylvania, you need permission from a parent or guardian to get an abortion if you're a teenager. So she and her, I can't remember if it's a cousin or a best friend, but this other teenage girl wind up getting on a bus to go to New York City in order to make this happen and then have to sort of like figure out what to do with themselves over the course of 48 hours or something in New York because they don't really have the money to stay anywhere. And um, she is a character who's in like a real, real state of extremis and um, is quite quiet and passive and the whole movie is really about these young women who men just do stuff to them and they don't really can't really do anything about it 
not in like a graphic way exactly. It's just that you sense that like that's been their whole lives is that they can't really object. And I was just so stressed out watching this on like for this girl. And I think the straightforward depiction of how hard it actually is for teenagers to get an abortion in this country, I appreciated greatly because I don't think it gets talked about enough. Even in like the Northeast where I think, you know, people up here often think that it's easier to access abortions, right? And it's obviously still very difficult for a lot of people. And um, there's a stuff that kind of winds up happening that I don't want to get into because it's kind of a spoiler. But um, the script of this movie is just really incredible. And all the stuff she's sort of saying about feminism and consent and, and et cetera, et cetera, is really complicated and brilliant and just like makes you really mad. And uh, yeah, I think this movie is amazing. And I think everybody in America should be forced to watch it. So uh, that is on HBO Max at the moment. If you're in the US, I don't know what the situation is elsewhere. But um, I like urge people to see it. Okay, well, we're in the home stretch now. Uh, my second film, number two on the list for me, is Mangrove, which is obviously another one of Steve McQueen's five small axe films. I think this is one of the two kind of most high profile ones, along with the one starring John Boyega, which I've not watched yet. Also, this is one that we discussed previously on our film festivals episode, but it is based on true events. The main character is Frank Critchlow, who was the owner of the Mangrove re restaurant in London, which was a Caribbean restaurant. He's played by British actor Sean Parks, who is incredible. And it's talking about, you know, institutional racism in England. And the main character, you know, he is very closely embedded in the Caribbean community in London in the 1970s. And the kind of movie starts with him reopening his restaurant and it very quickly becoming a very popular spot. But also, obviously, there's a lot of conflict in this neighborhood because the Black Caribbean locals are being constantly harassed by the police, led by this one specific, extremely terrible police officer. There's also a lot of people who are kind of political activists. There's a Black Panther character played by Letitia Wright, who has kind of a key role and I think was more high profile in the publicity for this movie because you know, she's a more famous actor, but like she's kind of the secondary character. And it's kind of, it shows this really interesting depiction of how he doesn't want to get involved in a political conflict. He just wants to do his job and like make people happy and have a restaurant. But like, it's impossible to live his life because he and everyone he's, he's surrounded with is constantly being attacked. And he eventually decides that he will allow his restaurant to become this like focal point of political activism. And the story kind of follows from those beginnings through to becoming a protest movie to becoming a court case drama when he and several other people are charged with basically inciting a riot. And it was this very kind of influential court case in the in Britain, the trial of the Mangrove Nine. But it's this unbelievably well-drawn courtroom drama, which simultaneously kind of plays into the tropes of the genre while also being feeling very fresh and exciting and well-performed. It's just... As we said, like in our earlier episode, the cast in this movie is just like so impressive. There's so many good actors in this who you've like seen in minor roles on British television. And you're like, Jesus Christ, a lot of talented actors out there who are clearly being overlooked by the British film and TV industry. Uh, but I just highly recommend Mangrove. Very gripping and well-drawn. And um, it just feels kind of very real because it's kind of intersecting all the kind of 
technical elements of the story, which you'd see in, you know, something like Zodiac, which is like a very kind of technical real life drama sort of film. But also it just feels like a lot more warm and real because you've got all these kind of elements of people's interpersonal relationships and their connections with the community and their taste in food and music and that sort of thing, which often is missing from the type of film that's all about, you know, criminal justice. Yes, obviously, great movie. Sean Park's so good. I, I'm kind of surprised. I guess it's because it's being treated as television that he hasn't gotten more attention as like an acting critical darling. My number two is also a NIF movie or a film festival movie anyway from this year. Um, and that is City Hall by Frederick Wiseman, which I talked about on our film festival episode. I think part of the reason why I was so taken with this was that I hadn't seen anything by Wiseman before. And so I was just like, this is amazing. <laughs> at his whole method. Uh, But basically, this is a three and a half hour movie about the municipal government in Boston and Boston in general. And I am from the Boston area. So particularly because I can't go home at the moment, I was really affected by this. But I also think it's just a great film. I think this would be a great sort of double feature if you wanted to sit on your couch for like six hours with uh, Collective, because it is also about like the actual practical process of how government works. But in this case, it's government working in a mostly functional way. And I found that really interesting to watch and quite encouraging to watch because that's so seemingly so rare in America these days. Certainly the New York local government is completely incompetent. I'm not suggesting Boston has no problems, but it is very clear watching this that they have more of a grip on what's going on, or at least did a couple years ago, than New York does. But I also think that most of the time when you watch documentary, it's highlighting something like Collective, where like something has gone horribly wrong. And City Hall is kind of doing the opposite. Like, his entire point with this movie is to show what government can look like when it actually is intended to help people. And that is something that in America, it seems like, is almost like a forgotten concept and uh he's just a genius at capturing also like details about environments and people and like really idiosyncratic little things and it felt like such a loving portrait of the city and its people to me in a way that I just really really appreciated the fact you know that it exists so I would really recommend that I think it's pretty widely available like for free at the moment. So if you are interested, you should check that out. Uh, City Hall by Frederick Wiseman. All right. So time for my number one film of the year, which has been solidly number one since the first time I saw it many months ago. It is the psychological horror film Saint Maud, which is the first film of writer and director Rose Glass, who has a tremendous name. And it stars Morvid Clark as a hospice nurse named Maud who is a very intense Catholic and uh, kind of the general premise is that she becomes the home carer of this very glamorous middle-aged retired dancer who's played by Jennifer Ely who you will recognize as the star of the 1990s Pride and Prejudice with Colin Firth but it's kind of about this tumultuous relationship between them but it's also about the main character just having this extremely intense religious breakdown Um, And she's living in this very isolated way, kind of in a bedsit in this uh, small English town, like a seaside town, a very 
unusual kind of situation for an attractive young woman. Like it's like a woman in her twenties who's decided to live in a bedsit and work as a home care nurse to a stranger who has no friends or apparent associations and is very weird and religious. And this film is so fucking intense. It's one of those horror movies which kind of it combines being very disturbing with often being kind of very morbidly funny. Not in the sense that it's a horror comedy, because it definitely is not, but it's like you're so on edge that her unsettling, socially awkward behaviour becomes funny. And there's also just so many levels of strangeness in her relationship with uh, the person she's taking care of because they are clearly so incredibly different in terms of their like personal outlook and their general lives. Like this woman played by Jennifer Ely clearly had this amazing social life and was very cool and is now stuck in this weird claustrophobic home life with this person who would disapprove of all of her choices. And it's it's far more complex than just being like they have an affair or something. So I don't want to kind of mislead you in that direction although there's definitely like a lot of erotic undertones surprisingly enough in this film about like a young very repressed religious person but just i just loved every element of this movie it's very scary it's very intense the main character just feels so kind of unique and it's a wonderful performance from the lead actress so i just highly recommend saint Maud. i want to watch it again but it was very intense and i was not going to go and just watch it like twice in one week or something <laughs> Yeah, this is still not out in the US and I'm desperate to see it. Um, yeah, it's it's an A24 horror movie in the US. Like they kept delaying it. And like I saw it at a film festival in early 2020 in the UK. And I was like, oh, I can't wait for everyone to see this in America. I can't wait for this to be like a really big awards contender. And then like it just, the release just got screwed by the pandemic. Very unfortunate. Yeah, I think they really want it to be in theaters. And I have no idea what's going to happen with that but i am certainly looking forward to seeing it when god knows when someday you know 2024 say god will finally i just i just left the cinema just like shaking (laughs) (laughs) it's a good sign yes yes well my number one is it's kind of a horror movie in an abstract way, though not technically. Uh, it is The Nest, directed by Sean Durkin, and it is about a middle-aged couple's marriage falling apart. And the couple is played by Jude Law and Carrie Coon. He plays uh, an English businessman. He works in the stock market in the 1980s. And they're living in the New York area. And at the beginning of the movie, he kind of says to her, like, it's not going well for me here. We have to go back to England. I have this big opportunity. And, it, you know, he's in charge. So that's what winds up happening. And he moves them to this big, fancy country estate that they clearly can't afford. And there is obviously, like, money stuff going on that is a little bit dodgy and you don't know exactly what it is at first. And um, she is quite suspicious. She's a horse trainer. And they're going to build this whole, you know, stable out back for her. They have two teenage children as well who are not loving this moving situation. And it just kind of devolves as his sort of con essentially falls apart. And um, Jude Law does the great Jude Law thing of playing a very charismatic and slightly slimy person who is obviously lying most of the time. And Carrie Coon, who people may know from The Leftovers, gives 
for my money, the best performance of the year as his wife, who is increasingly not having it. She is completely astonishing. I don't even know what to say about this performance. Like, it's just beyond belief. And the movie is directed by Sean Durkin, who has made one other feature, I think... I believe the only other feature he's made is Martha Marcy May Marlene, which was like 10 years ago now, which starred Elizabeth Olsen as a young woman who sort of got caught up in a cult. But he is involved with a couple of other uh, filmmakers who all went to NYU film schools together who have made other movies, including uh, Simon Killer and Christine and something else I'm forgetting. Is this the guy where it's like one of the one of the other directors was the guy who made The Devil All the Time? And I was like, wow, this film's shit. Morgan, Morgan was not correct about judging this man. <laughs> yeah, it was really odd because I had seen one or two of his previous movies and they were really good. And then obviously something just happened with that one that didn't Yeah, it's the out. Netflix money curse. Yeah. Sometimes when you yeah. get given a bunch of money, you can't make a good movie anymore. Very unfortunate. Yes. But anyway, these, these three guys, there's... The other movie that I'm thinking of that I think was directed by the third person whose name I don't know is called James White, which was also really, really great. But they share a kind of aesthetic which is like slightly cold and observational, but really psychologically astute. And this movie does a thing that I feel like Martha Marcy Marlene did also, although I haven't seen that since it came out, where you feel like the camera is kind of observing these people slightly from a distance. And that feels very unsettling. I like this cinematography of this movie is just like perfect. The whole thing is a really impeccably crafted movie, even if it may sound like it's, you know, just a relationship drama or whatever. Like the whole thing is put together very, very carefully to make you feel this unsettling sense of like, almost like someone is watching these people, which I think is intended to give you a little bit of the feeling that the wife is having of like, something is not right here. And uh, yeah, I was just totally blown away. Yeah, I've been looking forward to this as soon as it was announced. I remember we were both very excited for it. And I'm very frustrated that it is not available in the UK. (laughs) Yeah, it's only available on Amazon, unfortunately, in the US at the moment. But uh, it was worth the five or six dollars, whatever that I paid to watch it. Carrie Coon is just one of the best actors alive. It is insane to me that she is not getting offers to star in like every single movie that is being made. She also is not doing anything to fuck up her face. And it is amazing how much that helps. She would be an amazing actor anyway. And she's completely beautiful. But she actually looks like an early middle-aged person, which most of them don't. Like, she has lines in her neck, because that's what happens when you get older. And she just feels like a real person. And has talked about that in interviews, that she's just like, no, thank you. I respect her so, so much. I think she is incredible. And I hope that this movie gets her more great roles, because I, I'm i just in awe of what she can do. And again, Jude Law, obviously one of our great actors, too. So... Watching them sort of go at it, I was just like, I'm so happy. (laughs) This is just such a treat uh, to get like big movie stars like this, you know. I do want to list off a few movies that didn't quite make my top 10, but that I thought were really great. Minari, fantastic movie. Sound of Metal, also great. Riz Ahmed, great. The sound design on that, amazing. It's about a drummer who loses his hearing um, and the disability stuff is really excellent. Martin Eden... 
three quarters of an amazing movie and one quarter of a bad movie. But uh, if you thought Luca Marinelli was hot in The Old Guard, he's even hotter in Barton Eden. That's my pitch. Bad Education, Hugh Jackman. Great. Swallow is very good. And uh, Let Them All Talk if you want to watch Meryl Streep and some other excellent older actresses be passive aggressive to each other. Great time. Really <laughs> yeah, good. Yeah, I really want to see that one. <laughs> so those are my sort of bonus bonus recommendations. Yeah. I think one that's quite unusual that I would recommend that I think a lot of listeners won't have heard of is a film called Bloody Nose Empty Pockets, which is, it's kind of a documentary, but it's not completely a documentary. Um, Almost all of the main characters are played by non-actors and it's essentially improvised and it is set on closing day of a tiny dive bar in Las Vegas. And it's just all of the patrons of this dive bar just acting normally as they would be set over the course of like an 18 hour opening day for this tiny bar, naturalistic kind of documentary drama. I also liked the uh, sci-fi horror movie Possessor, which is very extreme. And it's about kind of a mind control, mind um, implantation technology assassin. Um, So Possessor, I would recommend if you have a lot of stomach for extreme gore. Yes. A film that you told me I should not watch. Um, (laughs) That's our 2020 in review. I hope that you enjoyed this big rundown of all these movies that we loved. And um, if you watch and enjoy any of these on our recommendation, we would love to hear about it. Or indeed, if you just like any of these movies already. Please share your thoughts. <laughs> or if you hate them, we love to get your messages and tweets. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you for, you know, listening to the podcast for all of 2020. We appreciate it a lot. And uh, uh, and if you want to listen to a podcast about a movie that many other people think is one of the best of 2020, but we think is one of the worst. Last week, we podcasted about Tenet yes. by Christopher Nolan. <laughs> Unmentioned until now. I mean, if I were doing like my full set of like Oscar nominations, which is a document that I keep every year with little lists because I'm an insane person, I would nominate Tenet for cinematography and score, but it would not show up in other categories. So you can also listen to a sort of 2020 in review mailbag episode that we did on Patreon. Uh, If you so desire, that is at patreon.com slash overinvestedpodcast. And next week, we will be completely departing the 2020 zone and discussing the classic 90s film, Much Do But Nothing, directed by and starring Kenneth Branagh, which I have not rewatched yet. Delightful. Very, very entertaining. Very, very 90s. Very charming. I watched it the other day and had a lot of fun. Very easy to watch. (laughs) Yes. I love this movie and I haven't rewatched it yet for this purpose, but um, was very delighted by your tweets about it, which took me back into the zone of that movie, which I'm pretty sure I saw in high school and was like, I love Oh yeah, this. I saw it in high school yeah. for sure. Yeah. But I was also like, when I rewatched it, I was like, I wonder if we watched like an edited version because I was watching with my flatmate and we were both like, we don't remember when we saw this in school, there being an extended nude sequence at the beginning. So maybe there was like a high school cut. <laughs> <laughs> maybe they just started it a bit late. Yeah, they were like, we're going to skip the credits because the credits are just people showering. (laughs) (laughs) Obviously also an incredible gossip text because that was shortly before the Branagh Emma Thompson divorce, I believe. 
And they're... I mean, it, it feels almost like it should be like the Mamma Mia of its time because it's just like a bunch of hot people having a holiday together in uh, Italy. So <laughs> I mean, I hope they all had a great time making it. It feels like that was what happened. The- Kenneth Branagh, Emma Thompson, Helena Bonham Carter, Love Triangle is one of the great salacious gossip items of the 90s, and I am not above discussing it. So we will be talking about that next week. So tune in for that, along with some analysis of Shakespeare. I mean, it's perfect that we're doing this so close to the Philadelphia Story episode, because those 30s and 40s rom-coms are so influenced by the Shakespeare yes. romantic comedies. And Much Do About Nothing is my personal favorite of those plays that I've read or seen. So um, I think it will be really, really fun to talk about. Yeah. So looking forward to that. Tune in. And uh, yeah, thank you for listening to this episode. Gavia, where can our listeners find you and your work online? You can find me on Twitter at hello underscore Taylor. And you can find me on YouTube at Behind the Seams, where I recently uh, posted a video essay about dead wives in cinema and why they all look the same. Just sticking with the Christopher Nolan Yes, there were definitely some Christopher Nolans in there. (laughs) Yep. And you can find me on Twitter and Letterboxd at ML Davies. The podcast is on Twitter at OverinvestedPod, on Tumblr at OverinvestedPodcast, and our website is OverinvestedPodcast.com. Thanks. Bye.